How many of you know that when we are in um, a weak place or a tired place, a weary place, or a place without clarified direction, how many of you have come to that place to recognize God doesn't always just sit down and give you a pat on the head and say, it's going to be okay. Now, now, sometimes he does that, and I need those times, but there are other times where God will just say, hey, I know where you are. I even know why you're there. I know how I'm going to get you out of there, but you're going to listen to me right now because you have a part to play in us moving to the next stage, us moving to the next level. I think that the call for compassion is an important call. I think it's part of the heart of God. But I also believe that because we have been over-compassionate, uber-compassionate, we have been hyper-compassionate to the neglect of the firmness of God, that if we're in danger of, big picture-wise, of becoming the church of the ever-growing pansy, that we're becoming, I mean the flower, I'm talking about the wilted <laughs> flower. And so I, I don't want us to just take some kind of joy and, oh, I'm more pitiful than you are. No, I've got the pitiful gold star today. No, I'm, I, listen, while recognizing that there's going to be struggles and trouble, I also want to recognize that sometimes God will wrap his arms around you and let you sob yourself into exhaustion. That's part of being an awesome father. But also a part of being an awesome father is he's going to look you in the eye sometimes and he's going to say, it's time to stop crying. It's, it's time to stop wilting. It's time to walk in the stoutness that is also a part of who I am in you. And so Isaiah 35, uh, God just gets all declarative on us. He just tells us what he's going to do. And I, I want to get in on what he's doing and I want to remain in it because I want to be a part of what he's going to do. And so if you're physically able, I want you to join me on your feet in honor of reading the opening passage. I'm going to read these verses in Isaiah 35 and whatever time we have left. I will, um, I'm just going to challenge you, but I don't, listen, oh, mm. I don't want your verbal amen to this. I want your heart to give itself to this. I, I don't mind if you say amen and you shout, that, that throws fuel on my fire, but I don't want that to be all you do. I don't want to preach for the result of somebody saying, well, that was a good word. We preach for a response. We, we preach because God wants to change something through his word in your life and my life. And so let's give ourselves by faith. And as you read with me, I'm going to read out loud. You can follow on the screen or in your Bible. I, I want you to recognize this isn't just an ancient prophecy to historical Israel. This is what God is speaking over all of his children right now today. Isaiah 35 the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they will not go astray. No lion will be there. Nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And all the people said, that's good, good, uh, not preaching it. It's good, amen. It's good food. You can be seated this morning. I love passages like this because it, it, it gets everybody in on the moment. It takes us to two extremes. Completely devastated, dry, worn out, discouraged, blown apart. It, it, it acknowledges that that can be an extreme in your life and mine. And I'm glad the Bible doesn't pretend that that isn't so otherwise we'd be in a heap of trouble because we know we go through that but it doesn't leave us there and that's what I love about Jesus and God's word is that while acknowledging that there are struggles and troubles and disappointments and devastations and losses and infirmities and pains it just doesn't leave us there it doesn't just continually perpetually everlasting pat us on the head and say they're there because what God does is he meets us in those places but then he shepherds us to where he's going. And that's the other extreme. The other extreme is life and vitality and revival and refreshment and healing and hope and joy and celebration and singing. And so in the middle of that is something called your will. What will you believe? What will you give yourself to? What will you lend your imagination to, your focus to? your concentration to? Will it be on the difficulty, the disturbance, the, the detriment? Or will it be on the promise and the power and the presence? And ultimately, we can't be in this place of brokenness and just assume when the sovereign God over all creation is ready, he will teleport us from the brokenness into the bountifulness. That's not the way it works. He is going to involve your will, your choices, your decisions, and so one of the ways that he does this is he meets us in these places of dryness and brokenness and struggle, and then he gives us some commands. And as we begin to obey those commands, we find our reality beginning to change. You are living right now in an outer atmosphere, but that's not the most important atmosphere in, the li in your life. You're living in the outer atmosphere, but you're living with an inner atmosphere. And that inner atmosphere is actually driving your life right now. And the inner atmosphere, the condition of your soul, your outlook, your faith, your belief system, that is what can swallow up the outer. If your inner atmosphere is holy, the outer atmosphere will never move it. But if your inner atmosphere 
is broken and fallen and not directed in the right place, then I'm going to make you a promise. Your outer atmosphere, all that's going on around you and against you and, 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 and all the things you can't handle on your own, all of that, when your inner atmosphere is not the way it should be, that outer atmosphere begins to condition your soul. And so this is where the Lord is saying, I'm going to do something and I'm going to do it now. I'm going to do it in this year, but it's going to require your participation. So today, let's look in the mirror. There is in verses 1 and 2 what I call a prophecy of renewal. It's an ancient prophecy. In its context, it is to Israel, but it speaks beyond Israel into the church. And within the church, it speaks into your life. A renewal in your assigned territory is promised here. We read of the wilderness. We read of the dry land. And then we read of the desert. The wilderness, the dry land, and the desert. But then there's a promise attached to all of that, that, that assigned territory. God says, and he speaks to Israel, it's going to blossom. God is about to do something that can't be done naturally. God is going to move in such a way that it will take a dry, barren, hostile reality. And as God begins to move, it's going to begin to, to, to express vitality and hope and life. And if you're assigned territory, if you're in a season right now where there are aspects of brokenness and barrenness in your life, and I don't know anybody that, that could raise their hand and say, Jeff, I've, I've got none of that in my life. Some are being swallowed up by it. Some are merely being touched by it. But brokenness is all around us. It can be around us. The danger is when it gets within us. And I'm not talking about a humble brokenness before God. I'm talking about a hopeless brokenness. Where we say the desert is always going to be the desert. The barrenness is always going to be the barrenness. The trouble is always going to be the trouble. And our expectation invisibly shifts and we stop hoping and we stop believing and we start believing that, uh, stop believing that God can blossom something in the midst of an outer wilderness. But the Lord is going to speak to all of this in this passage. And he just begins very simply by making an, uh, an overarching promise that I am about to blossom your wilderness. By the way, the Isaiah's prophecy dealt with a lot of bad news for Israel. And God gave them a whole ton of bad news because of their rebellion and their failure. But what he does is he also speaks to his restoration, his reclamation, his revival. And so this is part of God saying, you know you're going through it. But I'm going to tell you, what you're going through is not the end of the story. You will go through it. And so we look down at verse number two. Here's that inner atmosphere, a renewal in your inner atmosphere. Watch this. It is picturesque. I, I believe that there is a, a practical pro prophetic element regarding the kingdom and the earth being renewed when it speaks of the desert blossoming. I actually believe that's going to happen, but I am going to apply it spiritually to us today. It speaks of the desert again blossoming abundantly. And notice the characteristic of it. There's going to be rejoicing with joy and singing. There some built-in superlatives there, some redundancy. You're going to rejoice with joy. That's like joy, joy. That's like double joy. That's like layered joy. And the expression of it will be so intense in your inner atmosphere that it's going to be too big for, for you to contain within because it's going to have to give expression. And that expression is going to be heard in singing. And one of the most foreign things for us to do is when we are in an emotional desert or a circumstantial desert, it does not come naturally for us to joyfully sing. 
That's why some people really struggle in worship in a vibrant, enthusiastic atmosphere because they see people rejoicing and they see people celebrating and they say, well, man, if I had a life like hers, I could do that too. If I had a, a situation like his, I could do that too. Let me just pastor you for a moment. You have no clue what they're praising him through. You have no idea what they're carrying. You have, maybe it's just that they've learned that in the moment that if they will by faith begin to celebrate, even when their emotions are saying, there's nothing to celebrate. It's all sand and barrenness and dirt and heat and death. And then, and then in that moment, they, they take captivity, those thoughts and imaginations, and they say, well, maybe that is my circumstance, but that's not the way it is with him. He's alive. He's on a throne. He's a God of promise. He's coming again, and he wants to enter into my reality to bring me to his reality. And so what do they do? They begin to celebrate and they begin to rejoice. And it's interesting. In those times in my life where I haven't had an emotional motivation or a circumstantial motivation to praise him, but I just do it because I can, it's amazing how the emotions begin to change, even if the circumstances don't. How he says, oh, little Jeff, you're drawing near to me. I think I will draw near to you. And how many of you know that in nearness, with the Lord Jesus Christ is our joy, and that joy is our strength. Blossoming, by the way, is not instantaneous. Remember the old science movies? We used to watch them on 35 millimeter in the science class back when the earth's crust was cooling for our young people. But the, they would give you those time-lapse blossoms, and it would just begin to, un, you'd see it go from a bud, tight, no hope, of and all of a sudden it would just begin to open up. And sometimes that's the way our joy is. Sometimes the way it happens is not an instant, you know, kapow of joy from on high, you know, a lightning bolt from a holy angel, and all of a sudden you got the joy vibe. Sometimes it is just God saying, just open up a little bit. Let me open you. And, and as he does, joy comes. Renewal in your vision of God. Think about these three things. Renewal in your assigned territory, even if it's a desert right now. Renewal in your inner atmosphere that you too are a candidate for joy if you want it. And then renewal number three, renewal in your vision of God. Speaks of the glory of Lebanon and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon and these places in ancient Israel. And just the words, it just lifts our eyes up. Glory and majesty, those aren't downward things, those are upward things. So often when we worship, and if you, if you do look around, you've got people lifting their hands, people lifting their eyes, and you're like, what are they doing? They're checking out the light fixtures. They're, they're, what are they doing? They're, they're reaching to their invisible friend. What, what are they doing? No, friends, there's something instinctual in the heart of worship that says it's upward. We're, we're looking toward him. We know he is here with us. We know, but that throne and that exaltation and, and the majesty and the glory, the doxa, the kavod of God, the weight of his immensity, the beauty of his holiness, the power of his presence, and it just lifts our eyes off of the horizontal, which isn't always pleasant. And then when we fixate on the throne, we find that we can experience, yea, even see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Let me tell you some, some prayers that I pray. And uh, y'all can go ahead and sign me up for therapy if you want to, but I'm just going to keep praying this stuff. I, I've, I'm praying, Jesus, I want to see you. No, I mean I want to see him. I, I, I want to see him. He has a physical body. He has a, a physical corporal body. And listen, I'm enjoying him without seeing him. But my longing is as of such that if he reveals himself to people, I guarantee you it's people that want to see him. 
It's either the ones that really want to or the ones that really need to. And the Bible says here, speaks of seeing the glory of the Lord. There is coming that day. There is coming the day where, where the Son of God is going to enter the atmosphere of the earth. And the Bible teaches us that every single human eye is going to see him. We won't need faith anymore. Can you believe that? There's coming a time where you're not going to need faith anymore. That you're going to see him and all of your faith and all of your faithfulness and all of your endurance and having not seen him, yet, yet you love him. And, and, and just all of that's going to come to a climax where you're actually going to look in his eyes. You're actually going to see his skin. You're, you're actually going to note the length of his hair or if he still has the beard. I don't know how all of that works. Uh, I don't want to go to the Renaissance paintings and Emperor Constantine. I mean, listen, I guarantee you he probably looks nothing like we think he looks. I can tell you he's not pale with blue eyes. I guarantee you that. But the point is, is that we're going to see him. We're going to actually hear his voice. We're going to be able to experience the radiance of his glory on earth in the kingdom. And friends, I want to tell you, I, I haven't seen him with the physical eye. I may never. I don't know. I want to. But I will tell you this. I've seen him by faith, and it's good. I've seen the one hanging on the cross, and I've seen him say, Father, forgive Jeff Lyle. He doesn't know what he's doing. I've seen him exit an empty tomb saying, Jeff, I've conquered your sin. I've destroyed Satan. You're not a prisoner anymore. You don't have to live in shackles anymore. You're not an addict anymore. You're not, you're not perverse anymore. You're not immoral anymore. Jeff, I, I, I've broken every shackle that once chained you. Jeff, will you follow me? Let's get out of this tomb and out of this graveyard. Let's go somewhere. I've seen him. I've seen him ascending on high and saying, Jeff, I'm leaving you here and I'm going to leave you with all your brothers and sisters because in your generation I've got a great work that I'm doing and I want you to tell people of my glory. I want you to tell them that I'm coming again. I want you to tell them that I'll receive them. I want you to tell them to get off the side on the periphery and get on the dance floor with me and let's celebrate because I'm the king. I want you to tell them that, Jeff. The Bible says in this prophecy of renewal, that there's going to be a moment where we'll see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. I want those of you that are living in the desert right now to lift up your eyes under the hills. That's where your help is coming from. He doesn't want you to be downtrodden and anchored in dust. You may get a little dust on you, we all do, but that's not your permanent dwelling place because you serve a king who's coming for you. Verse 3. Here's where it gets really exciting. A promise of reversal. Now, this is where the Lord doesn't uh, pat us on the head. Look in verse number three. Reversed expectations. Watch this. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Look at what the Lord says. He says, I know where you are. I see where you are. I, I understand where you are. And by the way, when this prophecy was originally given, Israel was completely devastated because the chickens were coming home to roost. They were about to reap what they had sown. They were about to inherit the, the after effects of what they had done against God. And so it was not a happy time, but anticipating that they could become forlorn and discouraged and quit as this prophecy of captivity was coming on them, God says, but wait! Isaiah, when you speak to them, I want you to tell them that I want their hands to remain strong. I don't want their knees to be shaking and quivering as if they were helpless orphans who had been abandoned by their father. 
And I want you to tell them, as I see the worry in their heart, as I see the anxiety, the weakness in their hands, and the worry in their hearts, I want you to tell them, Isaiah, I've got counsel for them, and here it is. Be strong. Don't be afraid. Now, let me tell you, God's not pop psychology. Pop psychology would ask a thousand questions about why we feel the way we do and and, and what happened and trace it down to the fact that we missed about a dozen hugs while we were growing up and therefore we have the right to be a victim and we can fall apart. And, And there's just so much rot that goes on that empowers in our generation a perpetual state of victimhood. This this anemic um Impotency. Amy used that word in the, in the prayer room this morning. It stuck with me. The impotency of the church. And some of it is because we console each other into irrelevancy. We comforted each other into, into cocoons that are frail and fragile. We are potentially the proverbial snowflakes that melt away at the slightest heat or the least bit of pressure. And sometimes the same encouraging awesomely uh, compassionate God just comes to us and he says, I know where you are and I know what you're going through and you don't need me to pat you on the head right now. I love you, but I'm going to tell you, this is war and right now you need to be strong. You need to stop being afraid. Let me tell you what happens when you live in an unblossomed desert for a long time. You're sucking sand all day long. You just, well, I sucked sand all day long today. I'm going to be sucking sand tomorrow. It's, it's just walking around in the desert, and I'm just the sand sucker. That's what I do. And you lose your health because you see nothing green. You see nothing moist. You see nothing nourishing. You see nothing helpful. And what happens is when you walk in that reality long enough, then you begin to fear, well, what about tomorrow? Tomorrow could be worse than today. And what about next week? Because next week could be worse than last week, and next month than last month. And listen, and you begin to forecast your desert. You begin to project it. And fear sets in because you're listening more to the reality that you see about your outer, your external atmosphere, and you're not listening to God address your inner atmosphere because he knows if you will listen to him about your inner atmosphere by being strong and refusing to be afraid, then you will overcome that desert. As a matter of fact, you will be instrumental in reversing that desert. So often, friends, we, we're just looking for another hit on the compassion needle. Just like, hit me up again, man, more compassion, more compassion. No, sometimes you need to go through the withdrawal and say, I'm just going to stand, me and God alone, and I'm going to trust him, though it feels like I'm dying inside. And I want to commend some of you because some of you are doing that this morning. Some of you are, are literally feeling like you're crumbling inside, you're shaking, and the only thing you have left is your will to say, my God is good, I will not run. My God is good. I will not run. It doesn't feel like faith, by the way, when you do that. It doesn't feel like God could be pleased with something like that because sometimes the purest form of faith is refusing to panic. And and in those moments, I want to tell you, the smile of God falls on that soul that is being pressured and torn and accused and, and, and feels lost. And yet they say, I will do what is right Even though I'm not feeling right, I will do it. Be strong and fear not. And when you choose to trust God for that, I'm going to tell you, fear begins to dissipate. I got a PhD in fear, I promise you. I lived that way a long time. A long time. 
I went through seasons in pastoral ministry years ago where I walked into this building and my first thought was, who's going to hit me square in the teeth with some negative piece of news, some, some complaint, some accusation, some, some dis- and I lived that way. And I'm going to tell you, God was merciful, but he did not come and say, there, there, son. There, there, let's just sit on the platform and cry a little. Uh, not that God sounds like Bill Clinton. That sounded like Bill Clinton a little bit there, but... Should never do impressions in the middle of a serious message. Uh, the, point, the point I'm trying to make is that God just said, Jeff, do what is right. Do what is right in spite of how you feel. Now, this is what I like, and this is going to speak to just a few of you this morning, but I'm going to preach it as firm as it is, and I'm not going to be politically correct or diplomatic. One of the other words in, in the prayer room this morning was uh, the Lord spoke and said, um, stop being diplomatic against the de- de- demonic. Stop being diplomatic against the demonic. And, and, and you know, fr- friends, war is war. You may not want to fight... I'm sorry, you joined an army when you got saved. And the devil is not waiting for your permission. And we are diplomatic with the demonic. So when a lie is coming against us and we try to shake hands and negotiate with that lie, we're, 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 we're losing the war. You have to come at it with the truth. And here's some truth for you. What am I talking about? When God begins to reverse tides, verse number four at the end of it, watch this. This is a promise. Behold, your God will come. Now, that's good enough. Behold, your God will come. But it says he will come with vengeance and recompense. He will come and save you. Now, vengeance and recompense are warfare words. It it indicates that you have been done wrong. You have been brutalized in some way. You have been the object of somebody else's attack and anger. Harm has found you. And so what the Lord says is, I want you, I like the word behold. And in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it's always that I want your attention word. God God is saying, stop, look, and listen. Look at me, he's saying. I'm going to come. I know where you are. I know what's been done to you. I know what's come against you. But I am not going to leave you there. I am going to come. And when I come, I'm coming with a vengeance. And there's got to be a point in our lives where we give our enemies over to the Lord, not in just some sweet little turn-the-other-cheek, faux New Testament kind of paradigm. I understand all of that is true, but most of us, when we turn the other cheek, we see it as a, a just embracing another layer of victimhood. No, view it this way. When you turn the other cheek, you're getting out of the way so the God of vengeance could come and take care of your business for you. And some of you have legit enemies. You woke up thinking about that one that did you wrong. You went to bed thinking about that one that did you wrong. You're having a hard time suppressing that image and that face and that person right now that did you wrong. And you're raising up and you want to settle the score and you want to balance the scales. You want to clear your name. You want to vindicate your testimony. And you want to be known as being right. And so while you're doing all of that frenzied stuff, God's just saying, if you will recognize I'm on my way, and when I come, I'll come with vengeance, because you don't have any rightful vengeance. Remember that? Vengeance is, saith the Lord. And so we, we get all knotted up, and the Lord says, how about you just let me take care of your business for you? Have you ever learned, have you been in that place yet, that he can handle your enemies far better than you can? Now, I know it's diplomatic to say, well, Jeff... We're Christians. We're followers of Jesus. Do we really want to say anybody's our enemy? Yeah. Well, Jeff, you're talking about other Christians. Sometimes they act like our enemy. They may be our brother, but until they start walking in the right direction, they might as well be our enemy. And the Lord says this. Let me handle it. Friends, your name is going to get cleared one day. If you're struggling in this, your name is going to get cleared. The score is going to get settled. 
It may or may not happen in this lifetime. I think a lot of times it does if we would be patient and wait. But the Bible says he's going to come and save you. It's not just that he's going to clear your name. He is going to reverse the tide that has come against you. I'm going to tell you something. If your ship is taking on water and life right now in any place, any parcel of life, and you feel like the ship is sinking, listen, he's going to reverse the tides. The high tides are going to move out. Uh, you're not going to sink. I just tell you that in the name of Jesus, you're his child, and he's not going to let you sink to the bottom of the ocean and forget you there. That's just not how he plays. He doesn't do that. He will let you get wet. He, he may have you ride in like the Apostle Paul and his crew did in the back of the book of Acts. They had to ride to the shore clinging on to pieces of the boat, but they got to shore safely. And the Lord is going to come and save you, but you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait. One of the most diabolical elements and tactics of the enemy is to harness, harness our natural impatience. We, a lot of us live with a sense of urgency, and that can be very good, but there's a fine line between urgency and impatience. And so we're saying, Lord, I mean, honestly, this is the way we can live if we're not careful. Lord, I, I believe you'll clear my name. You should have already done it. Lord, I believe you'll rescue me. Where were you? I want to I make Martha and Mary's duet a trio. And they said you were four days late, and here I come. I'm going to add my voice, Lord. Let me harmonize with those two girls. And, and we think like that. And then in sobered moments, we recognize that, um, man, his ways just still aren't our ways. His thoughts just still aren't our thoughts. They're better, they're higher. And so part of our faith is, Lord, I don't have time to give any more of my mind, my resources, my heart, to the people that did me wrong because, Lord, I, I want to do life in a way that honors the one who always does me right and bring glory to you. Reverse limitations. Y'all still with me? Verses 5 and 6. Now watch this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a heart, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Some of this um, passage you can make symbolic. I don't do that with this verse. I believe the Lord is saying, not some point in the future, I do believe it will increase as we get nearer to the coming of Christ, but I believe this is a right now truth. Eyes that are blind can be opened. Ears that can't hear can hear. Lame limbs, legs that don't work can be instantly changed. And that person that was once bound to the ground will now be abounding above the ground, walking, leaping, shouting. Acts chapter 3, we already have precedent for it. And then the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I love this because this is a comprehensive promise of healing. The eyes, people that can't see, will see. The ears, people that can't hear, can hear. The lame, people that can't walk, will walk. And the tongue of the mute, people that can't speak, will speak. Now, this is what I want to do. Because <clears throat> I've, I've preached this passage of Scripture probably eight or nine times in 20 plus years of preaching. Um, in my early days, I used to make this all symbolic. Yeah, the mute will sing. They'll get, you'll, you can get your praise back. And you can, but that's not all that it's being said. 
and the lame will walk. Yep, God will put you on the right path, and you can follow Jesus spiritually. Well, that's good. You can do that, but that's not all it's saying. And the eyes will see. Blinded eyes will see. Oh, you'll be enlightened to kingdom mysteries. And you will be. That's good, but that's not all it's saying. And the deaf shall hear. Oh, we'll be able to understand and articulate and, and hear things of the kingdom that, that we could never be open to before. I believe that's true, but that's not all it's saying. We have to elevate our expectation of God. We have to expect. Listen, either he heals or he doesn't. Either he heals or he doesn't. And I'm going to tell you, some of you are still in that sovereignty of God snafu. Well, God will heal those whom he will heal. I, I challenge you to support that by Scripture. I challenge you to support scripturally the idea that God only heals sovereignly and the expectation of people has nothing to do with it ever. I challenge you to support that. And what's happened is we have so symbolized promises like this. Listen, God wasn't speaking just symbolically to them. All of those aspects are true, but God's saying in the glorious kingdom, when the power of God comes, when, when the fullness comes, there's going to be the reality of miraculous supernatural healings. But because we walk on eggshells around this thing, and because we don't want to declare it and be bold about it, because when and if it doesn't happen, we don't want to make God look foolish, or we don't want to look foolish. And so what, what the enemy has done is he's kind of gotten this into this be real careful cloister. And so what happens is we overthink something that God, I think, is actually making very plain. Now listen, I know this is a reality in my own family. We're praying for Amy's healing for more than five years. And if you want to say, well, Jeff, why hasn't happened? I don't know. But I'm going to tell you, it's not because God doesn't heal. And so I don't want to ever say, well, when I stand before the Lord, well, the reason why Amy didn't get healed in those first five years is because I just sat there and shrugged and said, well, you were sovereign. I just figured you'd do it no matter what we thought, pursued, asked for, fasted over, or, or laid her hands on her. I just figured you'd do it when you were ready. Back that up with Scripture. So Jeff, who are you arguing with? I think I'm arguing with those elements of unbelief in my own heart and those same elements of unbelief in your heart. And I'm arguing with the lies of the devil. And I'm, I'm arguing with the severely anemic expectation level of Christians in the Bible Belt in conservative churches. Where we just believe, well, you know... Let's just give all glory to God. Listen, he's going to get the glory, and we're going to give some of the glory, but show me in Scripture where we're held at arm's length and told, don't really pursue healing because it's all up to God. See, we're going to struggle over elements where the Lord says, well, be it unto you according to your faith. We're going to struggle with elements where he looks a man in the eye, a blind man, and he says, what can I do for you? He made the man articulate his need, and the man said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And so I am expecting that when your appetite and your hunger meets that place where you are confident of God's provision, that we're going to see supernatural breakthrough. And I want to add this. I'm fine with you being uncomfortable about that and the way it's being proclaimed. Do not muzzle your leaders on this. We're fighting against cosmic unbelief. We're coming against a level of unbelief about the supernatural healing power of God in the 21st century evangelical church in America that we have to say it tough. It's going to sound like razors sometimes. It's going to sound like a wrecking ball at other times. But we're going to tear down every imagination, every lofty thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We will not be diplomatic with the demonic. 
So my friends, if you're here today and you're afflicted in your body and when there are times where we say, come forward, let us pray over you, why wouldn't you come? Why wouldn't you come? Because on the day where you are healed, it will likely be a moment where you are exercising faith to approach a God that you, can know, that you know can heal you. Even if you're not certain in that moment, he will do it. But it will be on some level of your response to the potential that is described here as a reality. Open eyes, hearing ears, mute mouths that begin to sing, and lame legs that begin to walk. Verses 6 and 7. Power for revitalization. I know what time it is, and I love you, but I don't care. Verse number 6. A power for revitalization. Get some drink here. Um, Look at verse number 6 at the end of it. I believe this is speaking not only in the natural and the physical, but also the spiritual movement of the Holy Spirit. Waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Now, let's go on a journey. If you're walking through an arid area, you're walking through a desert, you're walking through your seventh mile of sand under scorching heat, when you see a stream flowing towards you, what does that speak of? It speaks of hope. It speaks of life. It speaks of rescue. And so when God is wanting to articulate what he's going to do on behalf of a group of people who are going to spend some time in a desert-like state, they are. Israel already knew that. But God's saying, I'm going to meet you in your desert. I'm not going to turn the whole thing into an ocean but I am going to bring you a stream. When you, when you read in Scripture, a lot of the times there are so many different symbolic elements that typify the Holy Spirit. And one of those is moving water, it, it, especially in prophetic books. You know, you got your, your major and minor prophets. And when you're reading some of the imagery they use, you got Ezekiel with the river and the stream coming out from under the, the throne and the temple in the future. And it, it's just movement and it's moving. Moving water often typifies the Holy Spirit. And so when I look at that, and if I can layer that symbolism over this, and I think I can, that that what we're seeing is that God meets people in their wilderness, and he sends forth a stream towards them. He sends forth a breaking forth of the waters all around them, sand, all around them, hopelessness. But God has the uncanny ability to find you exactly where you are in the desert, and the Holy Spirit begins to move toward you purposefully, intentionally, unpredictably moving towards you to to find you in the midst, to bring you the hope. The stream does not carry you out of the desert. The stream renews you in the desert. And that's what the Lord wants to do. We are so addicted to all or nothing, all or nothing, Lord, I don't want to be in the desert. Get me out of the desert. And the Lord says, no, I, I want to meet you in the desert. No, I want you to just leave me alone in the desert or get me out of the desert. And the Lord says, no, I'm actually going to bring a stream of renewal to you. And so often we think in all or nothing paradigms. That's why a lot of people aren't enjoying their walk with Jesus. Because they can't live in the tension between the reality of the struggle and the provision that you need while you're in the struggle. 
And so they're wanting instant relief. And if instant relief doesn't happen, they're depressed, they're despondent. Friends, listen, that is a childish way for us to live out our faith. It's it's ridiculous. There's never been a generation of Christians who have had the legitimate ability to presume that God was going to saddle them up and put on their shoulders a cushioned cross. Lord, I'll take my cross. I would I'd like it in satin. I'd like it with a three-inch layer of foam, properly stitched, tightly wound. And if you don't mind, it gets a little hot in life sometimes. So could you put some of that cooling foam in it? It, We're laughing because we have to. But the fact of the matter is, if we will at times research our life, we will find that, that, that we're perilously close to being bitter with God because life is hard. And it's, listen... On this side of paradise, it's going to be hard sometimes. And he never promises to banish hardship from our life. He says, I'll send a stream that way. I am the stream. I am the movement. I am the one who finds you in the desert. And I'll meet you there. And I pray that some of you that may be on the edge of saying, I I can't do the desert anymore. I pray that you'll, you'll recognize this next thing. There's a fulfillment of promises. Look in verse 7, a fulfillment of promises. He speaks of the burning sand becoming a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. You can't read it in the English. I don't think any of the English translations unpack the Hebrew there, but the burning sand is literally a Hebrew word that indicates a mirage. We've all either seen this. I mean, there's been times I've been in severe heat and you, you look out in the, on the horizon if you're on a flat surface, you, you see the waves, the heat waves coming off the surface and you can actually see things. And so you begin to move closer towards it only to realize there's nothing there. It's called a mirage. And so we've, we've seen it at least typified in art and books and movies and TV and all that, that somebody swears they see the palm trees and the pool and they're out in the middle of the desert and, and, and they're just, it's, it's not there. They're just seeing things. And I'm going to tell you something. I love the fact that God employs that terminology in this verse. He's giving promise after promise after promise after promise. And he's saying, it seems like a mirage to some of you. It, it, it seems like it's something that should be there, but in your heart, you're saying it's probably not real. And God says, I'm going to turn that thing that has felt like a mirage to you, that's felt like a hollow promise to you, that's felt like it's never going to happen. I'm going to take that. I'm going to make it actual. I'm going to take the appearance of the oasis and I'm going to make it an actual oasis. I'm not only going to meet you in the desert with some streams of hope, I'm going to make a place where you can just spend some time and being refreshed. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to raise your hand, but how many of you need that right now? A place of refreshment to meet you in dry and weary lands where there is no water. And so he says... The thirsty grounds will become springs of water, not only holding water, but giving water. I want to tell you something. Your desert that you're walking through right now is going to be, if you respond rightly, it's going to end up being, your desert experience is actually going to end up being a fountain into somebody else's life. So again, we have to wrestle with the fact of, oh, this isn't all about me. That I'm learning something here through this. 
that God intends to send as a stream through me into somebody else's life as they walk this desert. And so let me finish up. You guys have been patient. I'm going to finish up with talking about your enemy. Look at the end of verse number seven and the displacement of the enemy. It reads funny in the English. I, I love the King James on this one. King James doesn't use jackals. It uses dragons. And I always like that better. In the haunt of jackals, I think in the King James, it says in the place of dragons, the desolation of smog. You know, I think of Lord of the Rings kind of vibe. The haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Um, if you're walking through the desert alone, a jackal is not anything you want to come across. It's an enemy. It's going to speak in a moment about a lion and other predators. And this is what the Lord says again. As you're in the desert, sometimes there are places where the enemy can lurk and hide awaiting for ambush. But what's going to happen is God's going to take those little dried out patches and he's going to literally displace the enemy by making life and lush and, and green and growth there. And so the jackal in this picture is, is not one to hang around where there is growth being produced and life being produced and green being produced. And I'm going to tell you, in those patches in your desert, God is actually bringing to life some things that have been buried beneath the sand of your, your, your lack of faith for a while. I'm not being accusative here. I'm, I'm, I could be preaching this to me and I would say amen to it. That in the desert, God just works in such a way that in these barren dry patches, he begins to produce life in places where you didn't expect it, places where you're currently barren. Listen, God does want to bless you where you're already strong, but, but God doesn't want to leave us just kind of unifaceted. He actually wants to shore up some of the places where you're weak. He wants to grow you. He wants to stretch you. He, he wants to evolve you spiritually. And so he's going to leave in those danger spaces. He's going to leave you in the desert for a while sometimes to, to bring forth some growth in you that actually displaces the enemy from your life. And so we'll get down to the last three verses, and I'll move quickly uh, through them. Here's the pathway, and this is where you quit looking at today primarily and start looking at tomorrow because your today will be a lot better if you'll put it in the perspective of your tomorrow. That's what hope does. That's what Christian biblical Hope rooted in the promises of God and the faithfulness of Jesus does. It gives you a context for understanding today. Your context for today is not today. Your context for today is what God has promised for eternity. And so you have to view your life today in the overarching context of what has God said the end of the story is. And if you're saved, I just want to tell you, I don't, I don't want to upset you or anything, but if you're saved, you're a winner. Now don't get mad at me. Don't get upset because, I mean, when I tell you you're a conqueror and you're an overcomer and you're victorious and you can do all things through Jesus that strengthens you, I don't want you to get upset with me because it's true. Now, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek there, but what does that do? When we are reminded of the promises and the future, it doesn't give us the legitimacy to live defeated now. There is no legitimate reason that I, as a, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, should live a, a defeated life out of my negligence. Now, that's not the pat on the head that maybe you feel like you need, but your emotions have been lying to you long enough. You need to obey what God said in verse number four, and that is to be strong and stop being afraid. Now, the reason why he tells you that is because you can do it. You can actually not be afraid you can actually start becoming strong. 
And it takes faith. So in verse number eight, this is where it's helpful. We don't walk alone. A highway shall be there. It'll be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And if they are fools, they will not, even if they are fools, they will not go astray. All I want to highlight in that is the plural references. Uh, it talks about they. It talks about those. And then it mentions they again. It, it just simply, it's a very simple reminder that we are actually walking this thing out together. I appreciate your star-studded Lone Ranger mentality, but it doesn't fly in the kingdom. We're doing this together. There's a singular bride made up of a lot of individuals. There's a singular body made up of a lot of different people. But we are doing this together. We're actually going to spend eternity together. We're actually moving in the same direction together. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, right? But we actually are. We're actually following the, the one shepherd, the singular shepherd. We're actually heading to one paradise together. We're going to be with each other forever. Y'all better start getting along, amen? We are, and we're unique in this. Listen, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not going to be diplomatic with the demonic. The, we're not going to be sharing paradise with the, the, the non-believers. Listen, the Muslims aren't going to where we're going. I, I know that there are certain segments in the political world that would frown upon that statement, but it's two different gods, two different destinies, two different belief systems. We're not going to the same place. Uh, as, as much as we don't always see eye to eye in the body of Christ and some of the some of the cogs of our faith, the reality is, is that in the end, um, there's not going to be any chest thumping in heaven. Some of you are going to have to learn to walk differently because you won't have your strut anymore. It's just not going to be there. The Lord's going to even out all of that. But listen, you're not walking alone. Stop telling yourself you're all alone. You're only all alone if you want to be. And that's coming from a guy that spent a decade clinically depressed and all I ever wanted to do was be alone. And when I got delivered from that, I recognized, oh, that was a primary tactic of the enemy to isolate, to isolate me, to keep me away from people that could help me. And so if you're here feeling alone today, your feelings lying to you, you got people that love you and want to help you. And we will not allow anybody to walk this out alone as a body, as a faith family, but in the bigger picture, in the context of the body of Christ. And we will not walk in fear, verse number nine. We will not walk in fear. No lion will be on this way of holiness, nor any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. The redeemed shall walk there. Worship team, y'all come on up, please. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall come up on it. What is he talking about? This way. And ultimately, this is telling us long-term picture that there's coming a day where the enemy is entirely annihilated. Every demonic entity completely destroyed forever. Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the beast, all of that unholy trinity bound and burning forever and ever under the holy glorious wrath of the God that they refused. Every single enemy that has come against the church of the living God. And listen, if you can't glorify God in his wrath, you're at odds with the Bible because the Bible speaks of the wrath of the lamb. It speaks of the wrath of the lamb. Now, I understand that we're not to be, to be executing wrath, but neither are we to back away and apologize for God when the book of Revelation reveals the wrath that is going to be poured out on planet Earth for the rejection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you, every human being that has ever refused the Son of God, 
ever come up against the name, the holy name of Jesus that has persecuted his bride, the church, and our brothers and sisters in the Middle East right now, I'm getting these reports from the Middle East about ISIS, these Islamic thugs moving into uh, territories and, and decapitating men, women, and children because they won't recant on, on their confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, and they die. They literally have their heads removed because they refuse to back down from their commitment to Jesus Christ. And then I look at the church in the 21st century in America, and I say, look at what gets us knocked off track. We get knocked off track over the silliest things while our brothers and sisters are standing in the flames and standing in the shadow of the sword and standing with the, the, watching their loved ones be killed under the threat of deny Jesus and we'll let you go free. And they say, I cannot deny him. Brothers and sisters, there's got to be a wake-up call in us. I know that you have desert sand in your story. Stop letting it define you. Stop believing the lie of the enemy. Stop believing that the whole kingdom is a desert because it's not. And God is looking at you today and he's saying, my daughter, my son, I'm sending you a stream, a stream of truth, a stream of the spirit, a stream of hope, and I'm sending it to you because I want to strengthen you and I want to meet you in your desert. And friends, the day is coming. There won't be any more desert. It's just not going to be that way forever. There's not going to be any more devil. There's not going to be any more demons. There's, there's not going to be any more opposition. But you're not there yet. So you have to continue to fight. You have to continue to move forward. You have to continue to accept some bruisings. You have to recognize there's going to be some bleeding. But the ultimate end of the story is you're going to look in the very eyes of the one and only Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've endured until the end, he's going to say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into your rest. It's going to happen if we will press on. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Let's just be still a moment. Let's not rush these last few moments. If you don't have to leave, don't leave. If you have to, I, I understand, but if you don't have to, just tarry. Just tarry. <clears throat> I want to pray for some this morning. Some of you that work in our prayer servant ministry, I want you to come forward. If you have uh, experience and skill and what we commonly call altar counseling, I want you to come forward, even if you're not part of the prayer team. The reason why I'm calling them forward first is because I, I just believe that there's been some faith that's been stoked this morning. Elders, I want you to come forward too. I just believe there's some faith that's been stoked. I think some of you are, are sick and afflicted in your body and you're tired of it. And God's asking you to press in one more time. And we're going to pray over you. You need to be anointed. We can anoint you with oil and, and pray over you. I don't want to be sweet in a time of war. And if we need to fight for one another, let's do it. Others of you, you're in a circumstantial desert and the sand's gotten in your soul. Let's come and reverse that this morning. Why don't you come by faith and we'll just start declaring some truth over you. And truth evicts lies, if you'll believe it. We've got to determine who we're going to listen to. 
When you start listening and we stop listening to the Lord, you always end up listening to something inferior. And then everything you see reaffirms that inferior voice in your lie, which moves you away further from the Lord until you can't hear him at all. Let us come alongside of you this morning. I believe in breakthroughs that occur in a moment. I believe in that. I've had moments where God met me and I was never the same after that moment. And so we want to encourage you, bring your need. Stop being diplomatic with the demonic. Stop being a victim. Ask God to bless you with his best and then tarry there until it begins to happen. So Father, in Jesus' name, now we need faith. Holy Spirit, the gift of faith is in your list, 1 Corinthians 12. We receive now an endowment that is needed to facilitate the breakthrough that is needed. So Lord, I ask that you would create faith for healing, create faith for breakthrough. I'm sensing strongly right now, church family, that there are some that are living with a victim mindset and you're not a victim. You're not a victim. Something happened to you, but you're not a victim. And I want you to come forward. Let us pray over you. you just tell the person up front, I'm wrestling with a victim mindset because you're not a victim, daughter of God. You're not. Yes. So Father, I ask now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, even through angelic ministry, whatever that might look like. Meet us in this moment, Jesus. In your name, amen.